Good afternoon and welcome to Hudson Institute. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. I'm delighted to welcome everyone for today's panel, which is an important one on what is China's strategy in Asia and what should the next American president do about it. Hudson Institute is a think tank dedicated to strong and engaged international leadership and partnership with our allies. We've had a long and an illustrious history of work on Asia that dates back to our founder, Herman Kahn, who was, of course, the pioneer of uh, scenario planning for defense policy and for foreign policy more broadly. Herman was the first to predict the rise of Asia, if you will, in a 1962 study for the Pentagon looking at the possibility uh, that Japan might become a nuclear power. Uh, Khan realized at this time that uh, Japan was very likely to become the world's second largest economy at some point in the early to mid-1970s. Others uh, laughed at this prediction, but uh, <clears throat> Khan's work proved correct, and Khan went on to do other work about the rise of uh, the Asian tigers, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan, traveled regularly throughout the region, meeting with officials and the like. And we've, though policy in the past year has kept a lot of our scholars focused on the Middle East and Ukraine, Russia, and the like, with the urgent sometimes crowding out the important, uh, we remain very engaged in uh, critical policy debates, particularly over Asia. More broadly, our colleagues have been up to Capitol Hill more than 70 times this year, testifying now 10 times before various committees on U.S. foreign and defense policy. Now, U.S. policy, as we often know in this area, as in, with regard to the Middle East uh, and uh, Eurasia, sometimes occurs within a vacuum in which uh, we ignore what our strategic competitors are up to or tend to downplay what, what it is they're trying to achieve. Uh, as we see quite often, frankly, from this uh, current administration, that is certainly not the case here at Hudson and certainly not the case uh, with our, our moderator today, Mike Pillsbury, who is the uh, director of Hudson's uh, Center on Chinese Strategy. Mike is the author of an uh, important best-selling book, The Hundred-Year Marathon, China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as the Global Superpower. He actually has been a longtime consultant to the Department of Defense and to various other U.S. government agencies uh, and a longtime uh, China hand. Mike actually leaves later today for Ch uh, Japan and uh, Taiwan, where he's going to be promoting the uh, translations of his book. The book is already a runaway bestseller in Japan, having sold 10,000 copies. The first print run is already sold out, and uh, the book is going to go into uh, additional print runs. We also know Mike and I were in China over the summer to, for important meetings with about a dozen Chinese think tanks to talk about uh, comparative strategy. And we know that the book was, has already been pirated there and has undoubtedly sold far more than 10,000 <laughs> copies in China in various uh, translations. Uh, but we, it was an important uh, trip for us both, and we had meetings with PLA strategists, a number of generals, and uh, think tank officials to talk about uh, Chinese strategy and what possible American reactions to the strategy uh, must uh, ought to be. Mike, of course, also uh, hosted uh, the author of a book called uh, China Dream, uh, Colonel Yu Ming Fu, uh, a noted uh, 
hardliner in China who has uh, become increasingly important under uh, Xi Jinping uh, as someone who is uh, viewed as a source of uh, important strategic ideas. And even the New York Times uh, wrote about uh, Mike's hosting Liu uh, Mengfu uh, at his home for, uh, for an important uh, discussion. Now, the question of China's strategy in Asia is becoming increasingly important because of uh, significant chi changes that we're seeing in Chinese strategy, some of which are outlined in, uh, in Mike's book. And uh, we know late May this year that the uh, Chinese military uh, unveiled a formal white paper that uh, outlines a much more strikingly aggressive uh, policy of active defense. Obviously, this is occurring against the backdrop of uh, the uh, announcement of the uh, ambitious one road, uh, one belt, one road policy, which is trying to bring 65 countries on the periphery of China into uh, more into the China sphere. So the question for us today is, what should we anticipate from China in the coming months and years? And what are Beijing's broadest goals and how should the United States react to them? We have an, a very distinguished panel of uh, experts uh, today and just sitting in the green room with them uh, earlier it was a very interesting discussion. We have uh, Jacqueline Deal, uh, who is president and CEO of the Long-Term Strategy Group, Dan Blumenthal, who is the director of uh, Asian Studies at uh, the American Enterprise Institute, and uh, Mark Stokes, who is uh, executive director of the Project uh, 2049. It should be a very uh, interesting, fascinating discussion, and I should note that uh, a couple of our panelists were uh, contributors to uh, work by the John Hay Initiative discussing how U.S. policy towards China should look. So I look forward to a, an interesting uh, discussion. Thank you. And let me turn it over to uh, Mike Pillsbury. Thank you, Ken. I think our effort to make news today is going to focus on what the candidates have been saying already about China, both the Democratic candidates and the Republican candidates, and then to, to, to make suggestions for what might come up in the year ahead. As all of you know, uh, in our election process, each of the candidates has a campaign staff of advisors. Sometimes a candidate will do what Jeb Bush has done, actually list his advisors uh, and uh, play up the specific people he has selected. Others have informal advisors who help them draft speeches or prepare for uh, political debates or media interviews. And in, this, in the case of our panel today, uh, and I'll, because I'm so old, I will use their first names, uh, Jackie, Mark, and Dan, uh, they have specific ideas about American foreign policy uh, toward China or toward Asia in general. And they are um, in a very unusual situation in October 2015 and continuing on for the next year or so. During campaigns, candidates, of course, don't know who's going to win. And they often make speeches with proposals in them, which if they win, whoever wins, then has a possible policy proposal to, to keep as a campaign pledge. And some of those uh, statements have already been coming from some of the candidates. Uh, I myself, and I, I think Jackie, Mark, and Dan also, would like to see some of our ideas about American policy uh, be picked up by the candidate who is going to win, whoever he or she may be. Uh, and so today's panel is to discuss the range of ideas uh, the panelists have 
about future U.S. policy, and all, obviously also what China's own strategy uh, may be. Let me just mention to you, uh, my own personal experience of this is I was on Ronald Reagan's campaign staff in 1980. That involved preparing him for the debate. It involved his first speech uh, in April of uh, 1980 to the Chicago Foreign Affairs Council, of all things. And Reagan, in fact, went on to implement some of the campaign comments he made during that year. So I'm telling a sort of true story here of what could happen to Jackie, Dan, and Mark's ideas. The first candidate I want to mention is James Webb. Before he withdrew, James Webb made a very major sort of four-sentence comment in the Democratic debate. He said, China is the greatest national security challenge America faces. And if I'm president, he said, and then he gave some comments about the South China Sea. Obviously, Donald Trump has made it has very consistently uh, referred to Chinese mercantilism, to what he would like to do as president to get a better deal, as he would put it, with Chinese uh, trade, investment, currency, not taking American jobs away. So there's two very specific examples of candidates who have put China pretty much at the front of their uh, <coughs> campaign appearances and what they say in debates. Other candidates, I think, have not said much about China. Marco Rubio has written an article called, Is China's Dream America's Nightmare? Hillary Clinton is quoted recently as saying, China's cyber intrusions are shameful. So I would say pretty much every candidate has said something about China so far, but nobody has actually offered a plan or a specific set of things that he or she will do when they're president. So this is our opportunity today to start trying to influence what the candidates say in the coming year on China. Now, we haven't worked it out. Who wants to go first? Jackie's sitting closest to me. Sure. You wrote this wonderful article in the John Hay Initiative on a competitive strategy with China, and also ladies first. Sure. Then we'll work out between Mark and Dan who's next. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Jacqueline Deal. Okay. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, thank you to our hosts at the Hudson Institute. And I just want to begin by saying uh, what I'm about to say is based on my reading of what Chinese strategists write in Chinese for themselves and for their bosses. So I learned from the best, from the master. Uh, Dr. Pillsbury's work is focused, has been focused. Much of what he writes in the 100-Year Marathon is based on his conversations with Chinese uh, scholars, defense officials, uh, de defense intellectuals and academics, and so I try to learn from that example and read not the China Daily insert in the Washington Post, which is in English and is a tool of propaganda, political warfare, but actually what Chinese defense thinkers are writing among themselves about what China should do in Asia. And then from that, I try to think about what are the lessons here for the next American president? What should the United States do about it? So just to give you my two bottom lines up front for the next president, based on my read of the Chinese writings, I think, one, we need to act more competitively towards China, and two, we need to prepare for the possibility that even though no one wants a war, the United States doesn't want to fight China, China doesn't want to fight the United States, it's possible. We can't rule out the possibility that we could find ourselves in a war and in a war that could go on for some time, so we need to prepare for that possibility. How do I get to those conclusions? 
by reviewing, as I said, what Chinese defense authors write about what China's strategy is. So let me walk you through this. I'll try to cover how they write about their ends or their goals, their means and their ways, and I'll talk about how they expect the United States to act uh, because, as Ken Weinstein said, the Chinese actually appreciate more than most that strategy is not just about what they want to do, it's about getting us to go along with that program. So it's an interactive business. At the end, having covered how the Chinese would like the United States to act, I'll make some suggestions about how we think we should act under the next president. So I'll tell you what I mean uh, about beha by behaving more competitively and preparing for a potential protracted war with China. On China's strategy, there are two important sides of it, I would say. It's a kind of bad news, good news story, or a yin-yang kind of a thing. On one side are all the things that Chinese leaders are afraid of or insecure about, the dangers and the fears that loom large in the minds of decision makers in Beijing. But the other side is all about the opportunities for China that exist uh, that Chinese strategies, that Chinese strategists and defense scholars, think tank writers, they believe there are a whole range of opportunities for China today. So both the fears and the sense of, a real sense of opportunity exist side by side. On the fear side of the equation is a set of views about how the world works that frankly couldn't be more different from our views in Washington, D.C. or in the rest of America, as far as I can tell. When you read Chinese writings about how the world works, it's actually, it can be shocking or bracing. Uh, we Americans basically have a benign view of international relations, with the exception of some hot spots in the Middle East and some problematic actors in a couple other places. Uh, my sense is we think everyone's interests and requirements can basically be accommodated. So we believe that an international system or order exists, uh, that, it, that disputes can be resolved through international bodies and legal institutions, that markets work efficiently to allocate supply in accordance with demand, and that the distribution of resources isn't a zero-sum game. But for the Chinese defense scholars, the world looks very different. It's very much a zero-sum game or a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of a world out there. There's a global competition that's going on to lock up resources and dominate key transportation routes. For instance, the choke points or narrow passageways uh, through which seaborne commerce has to pass. And these scholars see China as being both behind in this game because they came to it late and increasingly vulnerable because in the last couple decades, China has come to acquire global interests. And the Chinese military, the PLA, can't yet defend these global interests. They can't pr yet protect all the Chinese investments and Chinese nationals in countries far from Beijing. The way they see it, China has a problem because it's dependent on things outside China's borders or things coming from outside of China's borders into China, and the PLA is not yet ready to operate abroad. So I'm just going to give you some quotes from Chinese writings that illustrate this point or this concern. They say, more than 60% of China's GDP now comes from trade, and 90% of China's trade goes by sea. International waterways and straits are thus, quote, China's lifelines, and yet they're not owned by China, nor are they controlled by China. This means that China's sea transport could be cut off. And when we think about uh, the potential interdiction of China's sea lines of communication, some people think about oil and gas, energy sources, but the Chinese writers write about a whole range of resources that are important to China's economy, from uranium to iron ore. They talk about how already half the uranium and half the, more than half of the uranium and iron ore that China consumes comes from outside of China. They also write about how historically China has been attacked repeatedly by outside developed powers from Japan and Russia to the West. And today, these Chinese authors still seem to feel surrounded by hostile enemies. 
These external rivals are threats, not only individually, but also because they increasingly seem to be working together, conspiring against China. One uh, reference to this is a term called dual arcs and dual anchors that the Chinese writers use to refer to the fact that, on the one hand, India is coming east into the South China Sea, and Japan is going west into the South China Sea, south and west, and so these two countries are forming kind of dual arcs that contain China. And the two, two anchors part of it is Japan coming south and Australia coming north and blocking Ch China's access to the Western Pacific. Russia, too, in Chinese writings, is identified as working with the Indians, the Mongolians, the Vietnamese, and this is perceived as a potential threat or problem for China. So that's the bad news, according to Chinese defense scholars. But now let me turn to the good news. On the positive side of the ledger, Chinese strategists seem very confident that certain important trends today are in China's favor and create opportunities for to catch up with other global powers or actually to exceed the current world leaders and have the most power out of all nations. These favorable trends include globalization or economic interdependence and the fact that China's economy is now perceived to be critical and linked to our economy, the U.S. economy, and that of other developed nations. China is also perceived to be contributing to international challenges constructively, helping with the war on terror in the Middle East, helping combat global environmental threats. Uh, Chinese strategists, in fact, began calling the first two decades of this century a, quote, period of strategic opportunity for China shortly after 9-11 when it became apparent that the United States was going to spend a lot of resources and devote a lot of attention to the Middle East. Uh, all of this seems, again, in the eyes of the Chinese defense scholars, to make it unlikely that the United States would actually go to war with, the United, with China. So they express confidence that while there may be problems in relations between Washington and Beijing from time to time and tensions may spike, overall they'll stay within a certain band and there won't be escalation to outright war. Chinese defense scholars also seem confident that war itself can be controlled or directed. And this is a function, they say, of technological trends since the end of World War II. The advent of nuclear weapons, they write, has made war, total war, so lethal as to be unthinkable. But at the same time, information technology has enabled very precise conventional strikes. So states now have the option of using highly targeted weapons with low collateral damage. And you put that together with global trade and the internet, which makes us all connected and also vulnerable, and the growing importance of systems in outer space, which can also be targeted. And you get a world where states have a range of tools at their disposal that they can use in peace or in war to get at each other and to compete. And Chinese scholars write that these new tools are blurring the lines between war and peace and between the home front and the rear, or the, the, the home front and the battlefield, the front and the rear. Uh, so you can inflict damaging cyber strikes or engage in economic warfare in peacetime or in war. Putting this all together, as I said, they believe that there is a strategic opportunity period that is projected to last at least for another half decade, out to 2020, and they can use this period to address their fears, uh, the concerns I mentioned before about their, the security of their access to overseas resources, the fact that their goods or their national, uh, their goods can be blocked from passing through choke points, the fact that China is surrounded by hostile alliances. All of these concerns, their goals are to alleviate them. They want to secure their access to overseas goods, be able to protect their nationals. They want to control uh, maritime choke points. They want to break up the hostile alliances on their flank. In short, they want to develop a posture that will be so intimidating that other powers will be deterred from challenging China. 
or if they refuse to acquiesce to Beijing, then China can use the tools of 21st century warfare to make them change their mind. And these tools, as we discussed, can be used in peacetime, or maybe it will be necessary for China to fight a short, sharp war to teach other countries a lesson about who's boss. So how, did, how are they going about acquiring the tools to set themselves up such that no one will cross them or even think about crossing them? For a long time, on the military side, this seemed to be about the PLA's acquisition of what we called anti-access area denial forces or capabilities, short and medium-range cruise missiles, ballistic missiles aimed at U.S. surface ships capable of targeting our bases in the region. But lately, we've begun to see the Chinese go beyond that in a variety of ways. Uh, they have discussions about perpetuating the strategic opportunity period by encouraging or exploiting U.S. diversion to the Middle East. There is clearly an ongoing effort to exploit the strategic opportunity by counting on U.S. restraint to change facts on the ground in important disputed areas in the East China Sea and the South China Sea. They're changing facts on the ground, in the air, with their declaration of an aid is, uh, at sea. Overall, you see a push in Chinese defense writings about the, a push for expanding China's defense periphery and increasing China's strategic depth. And this is encapsulated in a new term, a new phrase, a forward edge defense. That's the slogan. And it involves acquiring bases overseas, either through international arrangements, deals with other countries, or through infrastructure construction. So again, the Chinese defense scholars write about how you can build airfields and ports to support carrier operations on Chinese-claimed islands in the South China Sea. And this, all of this will increase China's capacity for expeditionary operations to support their global interests. At the same time, while being assertive or, and counting on U.S. restraint, so while changing the facts in the air and on the sea and uh, in the, uh, on land, China effectively raises doubts about the credibility of, the US, of U.S. security guarantees in the minds of our allies. So while we're being, being restrained and they're changing the status quo, our allies start to wonder about the credibility of our commitments to them. And that helps to address or strike at uh, the fear of hostile alliances on China's flank. It's not the only uh, way that they're approaching this problem. Of course, there are economic and diplomatic initiatives. Uh, as Ken Weinstein mentioned, the One Belt, One Road effort is designed to connect China overland and by sea to the Middle East and Europe. Um, so that comes to mind. China is basically undertaking a range of both military and non-military initiatives to improve its position in what it sees as an existential global competition. So what should the United States do about all this? Two points. Uh, first, I think we have to learn from the Chinese idea that we're in a peacetime competition. It's ongoing and we'll be in it for at least the foreseeable future. That means we have to behave more competitively, and I'll say what I mean by that in a minute. The second point is it's possible that the Chinese could get it wrong. It's possible that tensions between China and the United States could escalate to a war. And a war between the U.S. and China might not be as manageable or as controllable as Chinese defense scholars seem to think. So we need to prepare for that. On the first point, the peacetime competition framework suggests we need to add a new criterion to our decision-making about the Asia-Pacific. Right now, it seems as though U.S. policy decisions are guided by a desire to avoid crises or escalation, to maintain stability, and to reassure our allies. Those are all fine goals, but it's not clear that we're thinking about shaping China's choices in directions that are less threatening or more favorable to us. This could mean exacerbating China's concerns about its vulnerabilities to induce spending on defensive rather than offensive systems, 
or PLA spending on systems, the counters to which for the United States are much more expensive than the systems. Uh, we want to induce their spending on systems, the counter to which are less expen expensive than the systems themselves, systems, i.e., that would put us on the right side of the cost exchange ratio. Right now, China has been on the right side of the cost curve, building ballistic and cruise missiles that are incrementally less expensive than the various kinds of defenses that we have to build as counters. But Chinese documents suggest that China's own air defense systems are inadequate to protect all of the, quote, key points in urban areas uh, that China needs to protect on the mainland. So we should be thinking about augmenting our, our penetrating strike axe assets, for instance, with long-range bombers and advanced missiles. We should also be thinking about augmenting the capabilities of our allies and friends in the region, including Japan, Australia, Taiwan. For instance, this could mean helping them with defensive amphibious or their own anti-access area denial capabilities. And we should also be encouraging them to cooperate with each other and not just to work with us. Uh, turning to my second point, uh, my second takeaway for the next president, we have to prepare for the possibility that we could find ourselves in a sustained war with China. This means, this would mean more attention to concerns that are kind of nitty-gritty and not so flashy, but turn out to be very important uh, in protracted wars. And I'm talking here about logistics, supply lines, reducing our economic dependence on components from overseas that might not reach the United States in a protracted and high-intensity war. And we also have to think about these considerations, not just for ourselves, but for our important allies. So some of our allies are in a position where their sea lines of communication could get cut off in a major war, and where their economy is very dependent on trade that could be disrupted. So if we think that there is some possibility, not zero chance, of a protracted conflict, these are the kinds of considerations that I think need to be front and center on the president's desk, uh, whoever wins next November. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, can I ask you one sort of clarifying question? Many of your specific uh, proposals for the candidates, I believe, are in your John Hay Initiative article, which is online. Correct. Right? It's called Choosing to Lead. The book is called Choosing to Lead. Choosing to Lead. Dot org? I'm not sure. Dot org. Okay. Or net. Because you're proposing a lot of things. If I was a campaign advisor to one of the candidates, I would say, well, she has a lot of ideas, but they can, and they can be found in this online chapter, right? Yes. Okay, second question. Would you rather have Mark and Dan now go, or would you rather take questions yourself directly before Mark and Dan make their presentations? I recommend you let them go first, but you can have your choice. They can go, and we'll all take questions. At okay, end. who's next? Mark. Jackie set a very high standard here for advice to the <clears throat> candidates about their China policies. She did indeed, and it's a uh, it's an honor and a pleasure uh, to be sitting at this table with our uh, other esteemed speakers and our esteemed uh, moderator. I've known Dr. Pillsbury for for a long time, it's 1995, <laughs> if not earlier. Of course, his, his name also preceded him, and uh, I'm also sitting here next to to uh, other giants in the field of U.S. strategy and U.S. strategy policy and policy analysis. Um, so it's an honor and pleasure to, uh, to be here and, uh, and to offer some insights. Um, looking at Chinese strategy and implications for U.S. policy, to, to include, for example, Chinese intentions and capabilities is, 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 is no easy task. 
in general, you can look at you know strategy as being at the national level, you know, broad, grand strategy. In general, military strategy um, can be defined as uh, planning, coordination, and general direction of military activities to achieve political and military objectives. In, in, in essence, the ability to mobilize resources to achieve to achieve national goals. At the broadest level, one could argue that Chinese strategy seeks to make the world safe for the Chinese Communist Party and its monopoly on power. The Chinese Communist Party state, or the, P the People's Republic of China for short, seeks, of course, and this, these are things that come out of standard writings, you know, authoritative writings. Um, the Chinese strategy, of course, seeks to ensure territorial integrity and sovereignty. While all three of these general uh, strategic goals are interrelated, that is to ensure the monopoly on, on power of the Chinese Communist Party, territorial integrity and sovereignty are all interrelated, one could argue that territorial integrity would achieve would, would include things like border and coastal defense. Coastal defense, of course, being more than just simply what we view as a coastal, but also in enforcing maritime rights and interests in the East and South China Seas. Best example of a sovereignty-related goal, of course, would be um, related to Taiwan or the Republic of China, ROC for short. And I'll get to this issue in a little while. But in, in, in examining, given, given the, the task in terms of trying to figure out and parse what, what Chinese strategy is, in, in my view, and what I'll sort of focus my remarks on, is, is why looking at structure and process matter. What, why, because in, uh, theoretically, a policy outcome uh, is a result of pull, you know, tugging and hauling uh, between various different parts of the, of the bureaucracy. Whoever has the power over the pen over initial draft of a strategy document and whoever controls the coordination of that document uh, makes a difference over the content of that, of that document. It's not the only factor, but it certainly uh, has an effect. If one assumes that China's policymaking process is, is fragmented, um, whether it's in dealing with territorial disputes or, or whether it's you know, an ASAT test, you know, counter space or force modernization, then one can assume the absence, actually assume the absence of an all strategy. Maybe there isn't a strategy if, if they're so fragmented and different parts of the bureaucracy are doing their own thing. However, if one looks at, if one does an examination of formal structure and process, then one can come up with a different conclusion. One could judge that there actually probably is a centrally directed strategy. It, um, at the broadest level, for example, looking at, at military strategy, who is responsible for drafting and coordinating broad strategic guidelines for the senior most level for, for approval at the senior most levels, whether it's again broad national strategies or whether it's military strategy? At the bearing in mind that looking at sort of the system, the structure at the, at the highest levels. Of course, you have the um, central committee and you have the central committee political bureau or Politburo for short, and you have the standing committee. But you also have uh, underneath there a whole series of central leading small groups commissions, uh, as well as some under the state council. Um, for example, you have different systems that exist. You have a system for propaganda by itself. That often when we think about Chinese foreign policy or Chinese security policy and strategy, we, we tend to sort of give that short shrift where, where the propaganda system, the ideological system, uh, plays a very uh, important role. You have, of course, the, uh, the external affairs uh, system, the foreign affairs leading small group that plays a role. You have a separate but related group that has to do with Taiwan affairs. That is the Taiwan affairs leading small group. You have a united front system uh, that exists. That doesn't get much attention. Of course, you have a, an economic and financial uh, leading small group and system. So you also have an, an important organization uh, or a system that's called the political legal committee system, that, which basically has to do with internal security and, uh, and other issues together with state security. 
But on the military front, uh, in terms of answering the question about who developed strategy, it should be there's some decent information that says the, the answer would be the PLA Strategic Planning Department. What's why this department likely because he uses the word PLA in front of the Strategic Planning Department? Um, while this why this organization likely reports to the directly to Central Military Commission in terms of developing that first draft and then coordinating things around, it's worth noting its roots. The, it, the roots of the, the PLA Strategic Planning Department are in the General Staff Department. And so one clue here resides that if you want to look at a broad Chinese strategy on a whole range of issues, one of the first places to look is, is the structure and processes uh, that centered upon the General Staff Department. I'll give you some examples. Who develops and oversees the execution of strategy related to China's strategic frontiers, whether it's borders or whether it's um, maritime claims? Is there a mechanism that allows for coordinated execution of border and coastal defense? The, the short answer is, is, is yes. The State Commission on Border and Coastal Defense, which is clearly outlined in a whole series of, of white papers that, that, have been, that have come out since at least 2002, if not before. This State Commission on Border and Coastal Defense is directed by the Minister of Defense, before 2009, it was directed by Zhou Yunkang, who headed up the state uh, or, or the central political legal uh, commission uh, and eventually rose to become a, a Politburo level uh, or uh, Politburo level representative. But the state commission also includes four deputy directors, which includes a deputy chief of the general staff. But again, going back to the general staff department, it includes a deputy secretary, one of several deputy. Uh, Deputy Secretary Generals of the State Council, who also is dual-headed as the Secretary General of the Central uh, of the Central Political Legal Committee, it includes the Commander or the Director of the China's Coast Guard, who is also dual-headed as the number two in the uh, State Ocean Oceanographic uh, uh, Administration. It includes uh, the Deputy Director the Deputy Director of the Foreign Affairs Leading Small Group Office. It includes the um, it includes also um, so th these are the four these are the, the four key, key key members. But the key point here is the office that uh, that handles twenty four hour you know for twenty four hour work of this organization resides within the general staff department operations department. So what does all this uh, tell us? There's been uh, reporting that's gone on that that in two thousand twelve there was a leading small group established responsible for maritime rights and, and interests. Um, when you look at the structure of the, this, merit, this leading small group on maritime rights and interests, what one finds is that there's a lot of similarities with the Foreign Affairs Leading Small Group. In fact, the director of the Foreign Affairs Leading Small Group and this maritime rights and interests small group are this one and the same person, and at least two deputy directors of this office are also the same people. That tells you that this generally is going to be one organization that has two different signs. Um, um, but when you look at the issue of borders and, 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 and coastal defense, and this, this commission used to be only called the State Com Commission on, on Borders. Um, in 2005, it added the word coastal defense. Bear in mind, coastal defense also is, is not just, again, coastal. It also includes maritime rights, for example, East and South China Sea, uh, in terms of claims in that area. <clears throat> now, this, this system uh, goes down to the military region level. They have their own commission on border and maritime rights. To get an idea of, of the authority of this organization, when you look at what called inspection visits that take place from one of these four deputy directors or the director himself, and it goes down to the provincial level. Let's say, for example, Hainan Province, the organization that includes Coast Guard that does a lot of patrols in the South China Sea. <clears throat> uh, bearing in mind the military district commander is also a key player in, in, these, um, in, these, in this, the military region level uh, organization as well as the provincial level. 
But it, it doesn't just um, it, it doesn't just stop there. Bear in mind that this general staff department, uh, operations department, border and coastal defense bureau is also dual headed as a state organization. So th this tells us that one cannot look at the PLA as a pure military organization itself, that it has roles, uh, it has oversight authority in, in very specified areas on the civilian side. <clears throat> uh, one can draw the same conclusion on, let's say, for example, issues like the uh, Air Defense Identification Zone, or ADIS, that was declared over the um, certain part, part of the East China Sea in uh, 2012. When you look at exactly what kind of, there's been an argument that this was, again, wasn't fully coordinated within the bureaucracy. I would argue otherwise. Um, based upon looking at organizational structure. Is it coincidental that this, in November of 20, 2013, this organization or this ADIS was announced within two days of the announcement of a major change in China's air, air traffic control regulations? For the first time, actually stipifying or, or, or stipulating and outlining relative authorities between the civilian and, and military uh, organizations. What, uh, one clue here would have to do with, again, looking at the GSD and this office uh, for, it's a state commission uh, office responsible for uh, air traffic control or traffic management. GSD writings uh, outline clearly that what's called um, integration between air traffic control and air defense. So, and so one could argue that perhaps this air defense identification zone was indeed coordinated and developed by the general staff department and has somewhat to do, having to do with the trade-off perhaps with um, this change in air traffic control regulations. Doesn't mean it doesn't have anything to do with maritime claims and things like that, but it's just something to look at. So, looking at also at how possible strategic guidelines, perhaps coordinated by general staff department, would translate into force modernization, because strategy also includes developing capabilities from a longer term perspective. I'd argue that based upon CMC approved general, mid to long term strategic guidelines, of course, the General Armaments Department uh, plays a coordinating role in developing what's called, and this is explicit, because we do know this exists, the PLA Equipment Development Strategy. This strategy established PLA-wide priorities for the long term, that is 20 to 30 years, as well as midterm, 10 years, and short term, five years. The investments that go in and, and the tugging and sort of the, 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 the sort of the tugging and hauling that go in in terms of what goes in to five-year plans tend to get worked out in this process. The PLA Navy, the PLA Air Force, and the PLA Second Artillery Force and the ground force organizations um, tend to probably compete within a set budget. Um, but, but also uh, working in line with whatever general strategic guidelines that were established. Also, another part of the strategy, the PLA tends to uh, adopt incremental approach to force modernization investments. The DF-26, for example, uh, which was showcased uh, last month at, in, in the parade in Beijing, commemorating the 70th anniversary of the, um, uh, of the, uh, Sino, or the, the war with Japan, uh, that it would be a natural progression of, uh, of its predecessor, which would have been, for example, in the, in the anti-ship uh, role, of the DF-21D, which itself was a natural incremental progression to the DF-21C, uh, medium-range ballistic missile that's terminally guided. So as a general rule, what you would have if, if a DF-21, if the DF-26C exists today that has about a 4,000-kilometer range, generally intended to be able to interdict targets on Guam, for example, or uh, in other locations, um, perhaps in Indian Ocean, then one could look at perhaps a, a natural incremental approach uh, to developing next-generation system could be to extend a range notionally up to 8,000 kilometers. Um, and one could look at a whole range of other systems that could be developed along these ways in, in their own form of a spiral development program. So there's all, all kinds of other uh, examples that I could use in terms of looking at some of the challenges in developing China's strategy and why it's important to look at structure and process and how that uh, could have an outcome on, on strategy. I'd like to sort of wrap up by looking at what all this means for U.S. policy in the next administration. It's difficult to come up with a coherent strategy 
whenever it's not exactly clear what the PLA um, uh, strategy is. There is one exception, I would argue, has to do with Taiwan. Um, I'll get to that after discussing other things. In, in, terms of, um, in terms of getting a handle on Chinese strategy, one of the first, one of the most important things to do is what Jackie uh, outlined before and has done well in, in, in doing, is looking at open, open sources. Um, there's been a problem in, in for example, there, there's a number of books that are published by, by China's Academy of Military Sciences and Nas National Defense University that can provide significant clues in the direction that China's heading, or at least some of their intentions. And uh, for those who, who, who don't sort of are, aren't able to be able to delve into some of the Chinese language, uh, it, it's useful for some of these sources to be translated. Uh, and there is not way not enough budget that's dedicated um, or effort to be able to provide translated uh, uh, volumes uh, of, um, of things that are published. An alternative, instead of having full translations, of course, is being able to, to be able to do a lot more to look at cross sort of looking at, at a range of publications, looking at specific issues. But open source exploitation, I, in, in my view, is, is a critical. Um, another, in my view, in terms of new administration that comes in, um, in my view, the thing that, that the exception in terms of Chinese strategy that, in my view, is, um, is relatively clear is related to Taiwan. The People's Republic of China, the Chinese Communist Party, in, uh, in terms of strategy, is, is fairly clear uh, what, what the intent is, which is um, unification on Beijing's terms consistent with what's referred to as one country, two systems policy. One country, two systems policy is that there's one China, Taiwan is part of China. And, uh, and, and the PRC is the sole representative of one China in the national community. Now, and so it, it's, uh, that's sort of their, their perspective, um, and they've been relatively effective in actually in implementing the, this sort of perspective, uh, particularly here in Washington, D.C., <clears throat> in terms of having the PRC be the sole representative of China in the national community. The objective reality is that there are two legitimate governments on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China. There are two legitimate governments. Since 1979, um, we have, in terms of extending legitimacy to one of these governments, we went full bore in terms of uh, switching our diplomatic recognition from the Republic of China to the People's Republic of China. This did not negate the legitimate existence of the Republic of China. Um, that, in terms of extending diplomatic recognition, does not necessarily detract from it, its uh, objective uh, existence. Since the first peaceful change in government on Taiwan in 2000, and particularly now, and now that we're looking at the new election coming, uh, the new uh, national level election coming up on Taiwan, it, it will be increasingly difficult to sustain th this current approach, this zero sum approach uh, to our one China policy. And that um, once you remember that between 1972 and 1979, we had relatively normal relations with both sides of the Taiwan Strait in the context of one China policy. There's nothing in our one China policy today that would restrict us from moving toward a relatively normal relationship with both sides of the Taiwan Strait. So, in terms of a new, new uh, in terms of the upcoming election, there's uh, a lot of discussion made that you know, need to sort of put China on the agenda. I would argue that Taiwan needs to be put on the agenda. There is at least two candidates that, that make a big deal out of you know, being politically incorrect. One of the things we'd love to see is one of these candidates actually come out and say something that's politically incorrect, but technically correct, and that, that is Taiwan, under its current ROC constitution, exists as an independent sovereign government, legitimate government today. And that one uh, should set us on a general direction to be able to sort of move toward a more normal relationship with, uh, uh, with Taiwan. Three reasons for doing so. Number one is just the objective reality of its existence. Number two um, is that when we extend legitimacy uh, to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, authoritarian form of government, and withhold legitimacy from a democracy, what kind of signal does that send to the rest of the world? 
uh, sort of highlight some of the findings of Net Freedom House that had discussed that democracies around the world are actually uh, are right in terms of countries that are defined as democracy are going down. One should ask the question is whether or not this is a reason for doing so. Um, another reason is that if one is sincerely interested in at least providing the conditions for resolution uh, between differences uh, over the two sides of the Taiwan Strait, that resolution would require, in terms of that environment that provided, would would, um, uh, would could benefit from at least balancing legitimacy in the Taiwan Strait um, in a way that's consistent with our uh, one China policy today, and it's something, in, in my view, that's worth looking at uh, carefully. And that it would be interesting to see if one of our politically incorrect candidates could actually raise uh, this idea of the equal legitimacy of both sides. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Ryan. Could I ask you one brief question the same way I did, Jackie? Are some of the ideas you're presenting today, especially about Taiwan as a, as a topic in debates, are they available on your Project 2049 website for campaign uh, advisors who are looking for fresh ideas? I, I, I would the, – the, the, the most uh, – I went through some of this issue in a piece I did on the PLA, General Political Department, uh, in terms of the political warfare. Uh, if you look at conclusion, you'll see, you'll see some of these uh, issues raised there. Okay, great. Dan, another author of a chapter in the John Hay Initiative, bound to lead right. to help candidates. <laughs> That's right. A, uh, really a game changer of that of a chapter. Um, well, thanks a lot to everyone and to this great panel. Uh, Mike Pillsbury and Jackie do a real uh, signal service in, in translating and, and keeping abreast of Chinese strategic writings, which is woefully missing uh, in terms of our general analysis of, of China policy and what we should do about it. And Mark just is um, one of a kind in terms of breaking down these organizational issues. I mean, it's just always incredible. Um, and the Chinese, by the way, uh, there are a lot of Mark Stokes stories uh, which at one day should be written into a book, as Mike Pillsbury wrote his own experiences and was a runaway bestseller. But one is the fact that he... Um, on his website, uh, took apart the structure of the uh, nuclear storage uh, infrastructure of <laughs> China and the Chinese. From open sources, too. From open sources, <laughs> which, uh, of course, uh, scooped the intel community and everything else, and the Chinese tried to take down their website, uh, Mark Stokes's website, and just was in pure disbelief that this was even possible. So... Uh, the true giants, uh, although I, I am, I am, um, I, I do remember the comment. I see my friend from Israel, Gal Luft, here that I don't want to be overly modest because Prime Minister Golda Meir once said to one of her chief advisors, Don't be so modest, you're not that good. <laughs> but, but anyway, I am truly humbled to be on this panel. Um, let me uh, respond directly to a couple of Mark's points before I get into mine. One is, at first, when you said the power of the pen in China, I thought you said the power of the panda in China. And I would think that that would be a terrific article. Who has the power of the panda in China, right? And I think it's a book title. Right. Uh, the second is, um, I bet you can get Donald Trump to say he would negotiate better than Henry Kissinger did on the Taiwan issue. So I'd encourage you, just a better deal. I mean, just a better deal, all in all. Um, so I, I don't disagree and can't, really. Uh, I don't have the mental capacity uh, to disagree with anything that's been said so far. I, I would say that uh, just in my own sort of shameless self-promotion, I do have uh, an article essay out um, today or yesterday 
uh, that is a thesis of my own book, which is going to be called The Three Chinas or something like that. The Three uh, Chinas? I think so, yeah. I don't have a title yet. Uh, uh, or maybe The Power of the Panda and the Three Chinas or something like that. But, um, but uh, the essay is out uh, on the AI website, and um, the way that I, that I think about strategy in, in China is maybe a little bit of a combination of, of what was presented here. So I say that there are three Chinas because I just, after looking at it, you know, I just had to settle on three. Uh, and and, and uh, something Mark Stokes taught me when I worked for a DOD also is to always do things in threes. How to make sense of, of, of both the sort of bureaucratics and the sort of strategic thinking uh, and, and just the kind of ways China identifies itself. And I, 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 there are three different main impulses, I think, that shape Chinese uh, foreign policy. One is that of a continued, continued empire. And other people have written about it, including a former uh, Hudson fellow, Chris Ford, uh, in a book called The Mind of the Empire, and Ross Terrell in his Last Remaining Empire. Um, but, but I think, you know, and, and Lucian Pai, uh, a real giant of the field, I actually think he was six foot five or six foot six, so really physical giant as well, who famously, in a Chinese fashion, wrote one time that China is really a civilization pretending to be a nation state and then didn't expand upon it and left all of us to, you know, what did he mean by that? That's very deep. But I did, I did try to think about what that meant. And I think uh, what he meant was quite literal, and I think that shapes Chinese foreign policy, which is as much as people think that the history of, 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 of China in, in, in modern times was, a, was the fall of the Qing Empire and then a slow movement to, from empire to nation state, I don't think that's fully developed. I don't think that's fully happened. I think China has struggled to be a nation state. I think China has struggled with what it means in diplomatic and strategic practice to act like a nation state, to act like a sovereign equal of other nation states, uh, to view itself as a nation state. Um, I, th you know, I, I think that that's still developing. Uh, I think you can, you can trace from the fall of the Qing to, to now uh, the struggle of each Chinese leader to, to, to either form a nation state or hold on to some of the imperial way of thinking, if not the physical empire itself. And, and, and I think that still plays out today in, in the way China views the world and, and, and acts in the world. And that's a very strong identity that's not very PC to talk about, but I think if we're really trying to get to objective reality, we have to say that the way China talks about Taiwan, the way China talks about Hong Kong, the way China talks about maritime disputes in the South China Sea is not the way in which uh, nation states in a Westphalian nation state system talk about territorial disputes or disputes with other nations about borders or, or, or political autonomy. It talks about things in the sense of this is how they should be, this is how they always were, uh, and they're very universalistic claims and, and much tougher to deal with than sort of the classical diplomacy of give and take and, and, and so forth. Give and take, I mean, give and take, sometimes give and take in war, but still give and take. Um, so that's, that's, I think, a very distinct identity in China still. The other is, is this nation-state identity. And in some ways, the U.S. strategy and policy is only dealing w with this one China, this nation-state that we think is fully developed. Now, that nation-state happens to be not a democratic nation-state. It is certainly uh, run by the Chinese Communist Party, and it's, it's a Leninist party. 
Uh, but it's a, it's it, in some ways it is a modern nation state. It's just a modern autocratic nation state. Uh, you know that's what we deal with. That's what our strategy uh, since uh, Richard Nixon, uh, on the advice of Mike Pillsbury, opened up to China. Um, or was that Brzezinski? That was Brzezinski in the military <laughs> relationship. Um, it, you know, he, since he opened up to China, Richard Nixon famously said, um, you know, before uh, Henry Kissinger got involved, he famously said, you know, in, in a foreign affairs article, talk about ideas entering into actual policy and strategy making. Before he was president, he said, one of, one of my goals is going to be to invite China to the family of nations and not uh, let it nurse its grievances anymore. And that goes to Jackie's point about how much actual small-l liberalism there is in U.S. foreign policy, just the goodwill, and, and once countries join the family of nations, you know, uh, slowly and incrementally, uh, they will see that they have a stake in the international system, and they'll, you know, and they'll engage with us, and they'll moderate, and so on and so forth. And, and I, I would argue that that strategy, that strategy of engagement, is still what really drives our approach to China. I mean, I think once in a while we talk tougher. You know, we talk about balancing and we talk about hedging and maybe we send a ship into places that China doesn't like or, you know, sell Taiwan three different weapon systems they don't need or whatever it is. But really, we have a, a China grand strategy, a bureaucracy set up for uh, sort of engaging a 1970s South Korea, mm-hmm. you know, uh, 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 an ally that that we think we can cajole into becoming more moderate and democratic and having a great stake in the system. You know, if you really look at the bulk of U.S. bureaucratic politics, it's towards uh, it's towards engaging China and and in the thought that it'll become some kind of modern South Korea. And and I think and that, that's not the fault of the bureaucracy. They're doing exactly what I think they they think they're supposed to be doing. Um, but that's to engage the nation-state of China on nation-state terms. So the way we talk about things uh, with China and the way we engage them and the way we deal with diplomacy with them is really on nation-state terms, kind of forgetting that they still are an empire, still hold these imperial territories, still think of things. We kind of ignore the fact that they put out white papers saying, you know, these claims we have are based on our, our old empire and all the rest of it. By the way, interestingly enough in my research, the Qing Empire, the, 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 the new state of the ROC and the PRC is the only nation state that I can find of that immediately after the empire collapsed, what they first did was try to go get back the rest of the empire, right? So, mm-hmm. so most, most empires, most historically, most empires going to nation states kind of accept the new borders and, and they, don't, you know, they don't mind it and so on and so forth. Both the ROC and the PRC were immediately demanding Xinjiang and Tibet back as part of their policy, they were going to uh, the conference in, in, in Versailles in Paris uh, after World War One, arguing for their territories back. Now, granted, that's because of foreign encroachment, but it's the only. And, and, and some historian has to correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the only. It's the only uh, only case I can see where the empire moved to nation state and immediately demanded back its imperial territories as part of its foreign policy. So that kind of, I think, uh, proves, proves uh, part of my point about how this nation state is still tr- struggling to be an empire. But, you know, you can't to- completely call Chinese an imperial foreign policy an imperial strategy because it is part of uh, international institutions that, that have to at least de jure treat each other as sovereign equals uh, you know, that, that, that have to play, you know, the kind of classical types of, of international diplomacy and politics. 
uh, and, and, and so forth. Uh, and there is a sense of national identity among Chinese. It's not just an imperial identity. So uh, what I'm saying is there's really a kind of a convulsive struggle between those two identities that are playing themselves out in foreign policy. Sometimes it's completely congruent. The nation state of China wants, is more ambitious and wants more territory in the South China Sea. And maybe, I don't know if the nation state of China wants Taiwan because it doesn't make any geopolitical sense for them or very little, but the empire does at least. Sometimes they're congruent and sometimes they're not. Then there's this third, much less developed, it's almost sort of a tempering of the other two identity. And that is not so much these catchwords of globalization and economic interdependency and all the rest of it. It's the fact that that when Deng Xiaoping and then Zhu Rongjin Zhang Zemin decided to open up the economy, the Chinese economy to, world, to the world economy, the world economy was fast changing. It was becoming more postmodern, more globalized, less, less uh, respectful of sovereignty. Uh, global production chains, I think Jackie might have mentioned it, China becoming a key part in a globalized supply and production chain. China... Um, uh, China being coming so dependent on the U.S. financial system. Uh, so at the end of the day, it, what, the, the Chinese may have thought they were coming into what was a nation-state system, but because of this next wave of technological revolution and economic globalization, in fact, what they were coming into was something very different. I don't think they wanted to, but in many ways they had to give up some sovereign control over, over some major parts of their economy. Uh, and in so doing, I think, developed a class of Chinese uh, that thinks very differently about the world than, than the kinds of people uh, Mike, Jackie, Mark, and I usually deal with in China. They're, they're um, much more cosmopolitan and live in, in, in all kinds of different, you know, the, 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 the sort of Silicon Valley, Sinshu, Shanghai uh, nexus of, of, uh, uh, of, of high-tech entrepreneurs. Uh, there, what, there, there are some, and I don't mean to exaggerate this in any way, but there are some of what Samuel Huntington would have called Chinese Davos men, and, and you know, uh, people who have more in common with fellow economic elites and technocratic elites as they do with their own countrymen and, and, and so on. Now, this, again, is not a very well-developed part of China's identity, but it certainly tempers the other two pieces of Chinese strategy-making. So those are the three, uh, let's say the two-and-a-half China's, and that I think we have to we have to think about when we think about how China actually makes strategy, uh, you know, and in, in the way it thinks about its place in the world. The title of my essay is China's discomfort in an American world, because you can only imagine, given America's continued dominance, and there's been nothing quite like this in modern world history, how uncomfortable it must be for China to live in uh, a world, you know, that is that is uh, so dominated by this America with its, all of its liberal ideas about how the world should work and so on and so forth. And that goes to, to Mark's point about the CCP just waking up and feeling under threat no matter what we do or say. So, okay, let me just quickly move. I have like five minutes, right? Okay. And don't forget to mention your website. Uh, <laughs> well, it's, the AI website's very complicated. Just Google Dan Blumenthal at AI. Okay. Um, uh, the uh, uh, it's always attacked, so we have to. It's a very complicated uh, website. Um, it's it's only polite to say nowadays we don't know by whom, but but it's always attacked. Um, okay, let's move to U.S. strategy and the topic of what Mike really wanted to get to, which is what are we doing in Asia 
and what should we be doing in Asia? So I quickly analyzed some of the assumptions we have now under President Obama about our pivot and our rebalance and the Asia strategy we have now. I quickly jotted down some assumptions as I read through some of the statements and so forth. And number one assumption is the Asia-Pacific is going to be the most dynamic region in the world uh, economically and that history will be written there and therefore not in the Middle East and not in Europe. Assumption number one behind the pivot and the rebalance. Assumption number two, unstated, but you know, there. China cannot be allowed to dominate this most dynamic region of the world. Uh, and, and it is starting to because of the military capabilities that Mark and Jackie talked about and some other uh, uh, reasons. And so, and so our response, according to the pivot and the rebalance, is to rebalance our energies and forces away from the Middle East and Europe, put more of them into the Asia-Pacific, for a better balance of power, military power, and then what Obama officials like to talk about as the creation of a rules-based order in, in, in the Asia-Pacific. They don't necessarily talk about U.S. national security interests, per se. They talk about a rules-based order, creating one, of which China should join. Now, in fairness, that's what the Bush administration talked about to a certain extent with responsible stakeholder and so on, but for the Obama administration, even more... Uh, they talk about <coughs> liberal internationalist values like a rules-based order. And that's what we need to create. And they, they use terms like upping our game, uh, building our alliances. Uh, institutions are very important for this strategy, Asian institutions joining them and engaging China and the emerging, uh, other emerging uh, countries, uh, powers. Now, there's some problems, I think, in strategic conception and in rhetoric, right? One is that history still may be written in the Middle East and Europe. Right, so so um, at least traditionally, my read of U.S. strategic doctrine has been that we have to be the most powerful player and the shaper of events in three critical regions at all times, and they're interconnected: Europe, Russia, Gulf, and East Asia. So one problem in the strategic conception is, well, what about those other pillars of U.S. strategy? Right. Second problem is it's uncertain if Asia indeed is going to be the most dynamically growing place in the world. China is in stagnation. That's something that we have to get our heads around. It may be in long-term stagnation. Uh, <laughs> and some of these other Asian countries are too. Um, so we just don't know if that's true anymore. I mean, it's certainly important, but is it the most, you know, is it the most important? We have to look at that a little bit more carefully. I think some tensions that we have to face going forward is how much of this rules-based order is centered to our grand strategy and how much of it is just traditional national interests. As I said before, just the strategic doctrine of, of having a favorable balance of power for the United States and its allies in these three critical uh, uh, regions. And, and then finally, what the Obama administration gets most criticized for is uh, on resourcing and executing this strategy. And that's, I think, everyone at this point would agree that uh, when you, when you have a sequester and, 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 and if you don't have a TPP and all the other sort of things that any Asia policy person, if they're woken up in the middle of the night and say, what's the problem with the pivot, would probably answer in their sleep, right? So, so problems with the resource and execution. So is there a better way? And I'll conclude on this. Just some thoughts. Well, I would, I would, I would say maybe we should go back to our uh, more clarity, both for the Chinese and for everyone else, that we have a fundamental strategic interest, 
using the word national interest rather than rules-based order, in being the prime security and uh, political player in the East in the East Asia region. It's not so much a, you know I I think that that provides some clarity to things uh, for us and our allies, uh, and then resource things in accordance with that. So uh, that provides guidance to our military about what they're supposed to be doing, uh, because it's one thing to tell a military. You know, help China become part of the rules-based order. You know, I, they probably don't know what to do with that except for engagement. It's another thing to say, look, we have to remain the most powerful and and the shaper of events. And so I, I would I would prefer to provide some clear, clarity there. Um, obviously, obvious obvious execution issues. I think everyone agrees with that. Question of joining versus creating institutions. So some of the institutions in Asia are fine. But they're not exactly in line with U.S. Um, principles and interests in terms of market-based or more liberal and so on. The TPP has the potential to be the standard bearer in, of, of U.S. political economic engagement in the region. And a real, if it's a good agreement, we don't know yet, but a, a real contrast to some of the institutions being put forward that are more based on crony capitalism or, or – or you know, not high standards in the rule of law and all the rest of it. So the TPP is not just an economic agreement. It has the potential f- to really embed the U.S. in the region and, and give the U.S. A, a place to really engage on our terms in the region. I'm just throwing that out in terms of creating versus and, – and, and, and more cohesive alliances. I mean, um, you know, the, bi- the hub-and-spoke model of U.S. alliances is just not providing the security, I think, that we need. And, and we're slowly moving towards more trilateral arrangements and so on, and there's some talk about how to tie in these alliances and friends and partners more. But, I mean, the bottom line is some things are rather simple. If you had, uh, if you had what we used to call the defense perimeter, what the Chinese called the first island chain from Japan down through Taiwan and the Philippines, you know, more cohesively intertwined, and, and more protected, I think we'd be in a pretty good place if our strategy was in, indeed to create a favorable balance of power for us in the Asia-Pacific. And then finally, we have to really figure out the types of bilateral engagement we want with China. So a state visit right now after cyber attacks and uh, a human rights crackdown and uh, taking over all these that, I mean, is that really the engagement we want with China, or can it become more sober and workmanlike? Uh, is the is the SCED uh, with 20 cabinet members really the way we want to engage China, or perhaps we want to pick one or two or three issues that really matter to us, financial management and energy, strategic stability, and, and just scope it down and not be so grandiose about our engagement with China. So hopefully I've... Met my master's tasks over there, uh, but it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Uh, we left plenty of time for questions. Uh, I, as the moderator, I think have to point out one thing all three of you have in common that I also agree with you, and that's related to the media. When the media brings up questions during the campaign, it's very easy to bring up ISIS. ISIS is on the news, beheadings dangerous, expanding, 
So ISIS has been the subject of at least two candidates' major speeches and major reports. They have put forward ideas about how many troops are needed on the ground, if any, to defeat ISIS, because it's a dramatic topic. You find a lot of questions from the media so far about Syria. Putin is in Syria. What are you going to do? What's a possible uh, solution? Should we aid moderates? Should we stick with Assad for a while longer? Very much in the news. Secretary of State always visiting. So natural question for the candidates. I want to point out to you what happened when at the Democratic debate, for the first time, a candidate, James Webb, brought up China. I, I mentioned earlier this comment he made that the most important challenge facing us in national security is China. Do you know what the media did? Anderson Cooper was the host. The transcript is online. You can see the transcript and the moment. He looks at his watch and he says, you're, you know, you, you're out of time. And Senator Webb says, well, no, I just want to make a point about the South China Sea. Anderson Cooper says, you agreed to these rules. You're, 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 you're out of time. He essentially cuts off the candidate and rules out of order a discussion of China. Now, this to me suggests that China is still seen, and Dan, you mentioned this, a little bit like the Republic of Korea 20 or 30 years ago. It's sort of a weak, backward country. It's not much of a challenge. Uh, and so we people in the media shouldn't worry too much about it because everything's okay over there. That strikes me as a problem. Some candidates obviously bring up China on their own. They're thinking about the problem. But can you, uh, this is really a first question before everybody gives their questions and states who they are and wait for the microphone. Can you, each of the three of you say something that's dramatic that the media should ask a question to candidates about China in a debate? Or is it all pretty boring and there's no comparison to the other major foreign policy and defense issues? Jackie, you go first. Something exciting that the media would be asking candidates about. So I guess by definition it has to be something that's been in the news recently about China. Mm-hmm. Or should have been in the news. Or will be next or year. Will be. Um, I think most of the news coverage about China has been about cyber attacks and okay. the, econ the economy and Xinjiang and South China Sea. So we could ask, what do you think about uh, cruises within 12 nautical miles of Chinese claimed territories okay. Okay. in the Very South good. China Sea? What would your policy be as president? That, by the way, is what Jim Webb was trying to say before he was cut off. Talk about the South China Sea. Yeah. So that'd be a timely issue. What would you do as president about these territorial uh, changes being made? Okay, Mark. <coughs> Taiwan. Yes. How do you know? I, I don't see Taiwan <laughs> in the news very much anymore. Well, um, the elections coming we, up. We, we, uh, that exactly. Uh, that is it. Um, we have the uh, presidential election coming up uh, in, in January. Uh, this coming year. Beijing has already begun to posture uh, in terms of sort of the, the propaganda apparatus begun to come out that if Tsai Ing-wen, uh, who's the uh, the candidate of the Democratic Progressive Party, which is viewed at least they're casting as being, I'm going to use air quotes, pro-independence, um, bearing in mind that Taiwan, under its current RC constitution, is already an independent sovereign state. Uh, that's, that's ridiculous, but they they still like to purport that this view. Um, 
Be- Beijing is going to view this as an opportunity, and uh, with the after the January election, uh, assuming the uh, the DPP candidate wins and come into power, um, assuming the position in May, which is not that far off from the U.S. election, which you probably are going to see, um, is becoming is confronting a fundamental issue on how to bring U.S. policy in line with objective reality, which is how do you how do you deal actually with two legitimate governments? How do you bring how do you reintroduce principles and make that a fundamental aspect of uh, of our of our national interests? And, and so, in, in my view, uh, Taiwan and how we and, and how we how we manage and what, it, in my view, is an inevitable uh, tendency to be able to sort of bring our foreign policy in line with objective reality, and that is the legitimate existence of the ROC. How, how, how does one do that? So, in terms of a candidate, the key question would be obviously that that question exactly. How how do you intend to deal with um, with the legitimate existence of two governments on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. I would refer you to a um, to a, a piece that um, a series of questions that um, Representative Randy Forbes uh, b- published about a, right in, in the lead up to the uh, Xi Jinping dinner with uh, one of two Xi Jinping dinners with President Obama, which he asked a series of questions, and one of them actually was related to to Taiwan uh, or ROC and, and and how you deal with uh, two two legitimate governments. So we have from Jackie, we have cyber intrusions, which Hillary Clinton's call were to call it shameful, but there wasn't too much. That was like her own comment. It wasn't really a media question. Uh, and then South China Sea, what to do about that. And then Mark is adding what would happen if a candidate like Tsai Ing-wen wins, which he may likely do, would that trigger Chinese threats or use of force? And if you're president, what would you do about Taiwan? Okay, Dan. Yeah, well, first I'd say it's much worse than you think because, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> um, you know, being involved with uh, some of the candidates early on, if you um, – the media and, – and this goes to both Jackie and Mark's point about the absolute importance uh, that we completely ignore uh, about China's three warfares and political warfare in, in particular mm-hmm. because I've actually asked um, – some U.S. military uh, and intelligence officials, what we think we're most surprised about with respect, we will be the most surprised about with respect to China, and that is their uh, their political warfare capabilities. Uh, and they have it right there in the science and military strategy. So political warfare is underway every day, and you see it play out, and it's not because uh, – but, but anyway, they, if you raise something, quote, negative about China in a campaign, the stories in every major newspaper – Quoting, you know, uh, U.S. bigwigs and foreign policy about how campaigns all they this is just a China bashing phase and mm-hmm. has nothing to do with actual policy substance. It's just okay, everyone, calm down. We just are going to China bash for a while and then go back to normal. Mm-hmm. It's embedded in our in our uh, discourse on China now. It's really incredible uh, how that's how anything that's perceived as negative in a campaign is 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 dismissed as just bashing. So three questions. Number one. Uh, would you go back to Bill Clinton's peace, uh, peaceful, uh, uh, what was it, peaceful development? Constructive partnership? No, no, no. Strategic partnership? Peaceful evolution. Peaceful evolution. Which, which the late, great Jim Lilly told some Chinese, when I was sitting with him, he said, I don't know why you're against it. Nobody can be against peace, and everybody wants to evolve. So uh, what, he, what, what the strategy early on was, was that, that, that we're going to push the CCP to peacefully evolve to a more democratic and, and moderate uh, uh, government. So that I'd, I'd ask Hillary Clinton that in particular, but I'd ask others 
as well. So, so what happened to that strategy, that policy goal? Second is, would you sell uh, Taiwan submarines? Uh, and the third uh, would would uh, would be um, I, it, well, Jackie took the most you know the most pressing one, which is the nautical twelve nautical mile issue. But the third question I would ask is uh, the third question after after that is um, well, it's sort of competing uh, with a couple questions. But I guess we need we would need a statement from somebody first, like uh, Randy Forbes or someone. Or someone else, or a joint uh, Democrat and Republican senator, saying our policy on cyber should be to hit back every time China hits us at a time and place of our choosing. Would you agree with that? So very specific. Mm-hmm. I can think of some other subjects we haven't even discussed. There's a recent article by Bill Gertz in the Washington Times that says the U.S.-China Congressional Commission is going to come out with a report uh, sometime soon that Mr. Gertz had an advanced copy of that listed quite a few Chinese weapons in outer space that are sort of coming, have been worked on, and it describes a really major threat to the American government in outer space. But until the commission report comes out, I guess it's not really formal news. Another topic is India. I've noticed uh, a lot of discussion in national security terms about this new word that we use in the pen- that the Pentagon uses called Indo-Pacific, and the whole concept that India is part of our Asia strategy. And we haven't had time to discuss India yet today, but it seems to me there's a number of issues involving what would be your strategy toward India. Uh, but there's several others that may not be dramatic enough. That's my kind of warning to our media. Look, you're chasing this rabbit. When somebody gets beheaded, that becomes the topic of the next 10 books and every night's TV show and 60 Minutes. But when that's gone, there's other topics you're not focusing on. So maybe the audience will help us. I see, oh my goodness, I see 10 hands in the air and I think I see Mr. Bill Gertz himself here. We should get to ask the first question. Okay, you right here. That we'll go just first, first row. Your name and thank you very much. Uh, my name is Arnold Zeitlin. I teach in China. Uh, despite uh, an antagonistic relationship, the United States and the Soviet Union managed to avoid direct conflict for 40 years. That relationship was much more antagonistic than so far the one between China and the United States. So why do you think there is a possibility of a war, even a sustained war, under those conditions? And I was going to ask as well, what would a next president do if China moved against Taiwan or Japan or India? I think one of the reasons that we escaped uh, a major head-on clash with the Soviets was responsible defense planning and making sure that our forces were so capable that deterrence reigned and continued to reign. And even then, it was kind of a close-run thing. I mean, there were several very scary moments, from what I read and remember, uh, in that competition. So in the back of our minds, even though we none of us wants a war, 
I think we have to plan for the worst, prepare for the worst, be ready for it, and that's the best way to guarantee the peace. And that's, again, why I think we escaped um, a direct confrontation with the Soviets. Uh, also, technology has evolved in ways that maybe make the risk of, again, kind of escalation uh, higher than they were back then because of, as I mentioned, the technologies involved with cyberspace, outer space, um, economic interdependence. There are just a lot more touch points between us and them. And statistically speaking, maybe the more touch points there are, the greater the, there could be the risk of somebody trying to do something that was thought to be within certain bounds that turned out to be not. There could be misunderstandings. There could be an inadvertent escalation. And we're, we're so inter interconnected that in a way that raises the risks beyond what they were in the Cold War, perhaps. Okay, let's go way back in the back. I'm pointing at you, but you can't see who I'm pointing to. I lied. <laughs> He's waving his hand several times. I'll come back to you next. Thank you very much. My name is Hermes Levy. I would ask two questions. Uh, you said nobody wants a war between China and, and uh, US, but obviously somebody is trying to make it happen. Do you know who, who this is? The second question is about US uh, being in kind of retreat or becoming more and more uh, less reliable in regard to this, to its uh, allies. Why do you think this happened, and who is behind it? Thank you. Now let's take a good, a good idea, Dan. How about we write that we go to you next? We'll write down these, each, each individual questions. These are very general questions. Okay, what's yours here in the front row? Don't forget our topic today is about the presidential election, debates, the next American president, what are possible new strategies for a president. Okay, how about if I address this question in that direction? Please. Uh, but I would like to start off with a scenario that is actually a question. And the scenario would be if you were to watch a football game this weekend in which the two teams do not line up in huddles and discuss their plays to themselves before they come out to the line. And that is we've always lined up in huddles because we have secrets to keep. But it seems as though it, we are letting all of our secrets out because of our think tanks, because of our media, because of the, the, the way in which we've become more transparent. So. When you write a book like what you've written, Mr. Pillsbury, and it gets pirated in China, uh -huh. maybe it, is it is it fact is it in fact uh, counter uh, productive in the sense that you are actually disclosing strategy which can in turn be used against you? And that's related to the presidential election it debate. To all of that. Yes. Okay. Next question. I wrote that down. Back here, disclosing strategy that should be kept secret in books. Um, I'm Gal Luft uh, from the Institute for the Analysis of Global Security. I spent uh, much of my time in China. And there, um, for the first time, you feel that there is a, a great theme in China's foreign policy, uh, also geoeconomics, and that is the One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, 
And in the United States, we have not heard uh, any uh, uh, official response uh, or uh, uh, view of this initiative, which seems to be dominating most Chinese uh, policymakers. And uh, my question is um, whether you think that the next president should have uh, a formal or official policy on one belt, one road. If so, what should be the uh, response to it? Uh, should it be uh, more of an engagement or a competition or an alternative approach, uh, particularly in light of the debacle with regards to the AIIB? I think uh, uh, it raised a lot of questions uh, about uh, the need for a, a more uh, accurate and, uh, and comprehensive U.S. response. Okay, very far back row. You promised me it's about the presidential election and the candidates' debate? Um, in part. <laughs> I mean, in, in part it will be. Or maybe in part I promise also. I don't know. Um, thanks a lot, Dr. Colesbury. I would chill for a um, 100-year marathon, but I think it was such a good promotion effort earlier. Um, I, my efforts would pale by comparison. Um, Dr. Deal, thanks a lot. Your um, very savory um, survey on, uh, on the, the writings and some of the perspectives out of the PRC. Could you look at um, Bettman Holweg in the First World War and April Glaspie in um, the Iraq War underscore the need uh, for signaling, clear signaling? What signals uh, does the United States send if 60% uh, of its uh, surface assets are repositioned to the, um, the, South Pacific, the, the Western Pacific? And, um, and the contested, the growing contested domain of space uh, between the United States and, uh, and the PRC, the missile that hit uh, the, the satellite, or the missile launch that hit the, the Chinese satellite, what are the, what are the signals uh, the United States policymakers might be sending to the PRC in, 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 in the interpretation of, of maybe being aggressive, uh, almost as aggressive as the, United, as the PRC views the United States and the United States views the PRC. To your question about the debates, uh, Dr. Pillsbury, I don't know necessarily that, um, that foreign policy is, is all that um, appealing to the electorate. I mean, it, it seems to be more a matter of pocketbook issues from one cycle to the next, unless you know, there's some sort of calamity against the homeland or so. But, um, but I should think that demonstrably, more than any of the other candidates, um, Mrs. Clinton is probably the only one best equipped or, or, or best um, uh, infused with a sense of foreign policy experience and uh, foreign policy aptitude. So I mean, I, I just, I don't, it might be a sort of a non-starter to expect the candidates on both sides, Republican, Democrat, to be, and maybe with a possible addition of Governor Bush, to be all that um, keen mm -hmm. on discussing foreign policy at some of these debates. Thanks a lot, again. I don't know where to go next. You here in the second row. You promised a question on the topic of our conference. <laughs> William Lowther, Taipei Times. Ah, my goodness, yes, world famous would you, reporter. Would you um, recommend that the next president of the United States sell submarines to Taiwan? And also, what would you recommend the next president of the United States should adopt as his or her policy if Taiwan is invaded? by China. So it would be like a question to candidates, what will you do if, if, if Taiwan is attacked by China? Yeah. That would be a, like I'm a media. Are you willing to sell, commit now that you will sell diesel submarines to 
to Taiwan. Okay, over here. I get, you're sorry, you were patting your head up a lot. Wavy, a waving questioner, I call you. Question is about Chinese foreign direct investment in the U.S. involving the EB-5. Um, there's a lot of criticism about uh, Chinese investment in the U.S., um, which I think is very, very unfair given the amount of FDI that's coming in that's generating income for local communities. And certainly immigration, um, those will both be topics in the next presidential election. How do you see U.S. politicians dealing with Chinese immigration, EB-5, uh, investment visas, and or uh, bilateral investment uh, uh, treaty, say a tax treaty between China and the U.S.? Okay. I can see. Okay, one more over here. Uh, it seems that the uh, neither of the presidential candidates has included the protection of China's human rights and and and, and, uh, and, and the freedom of a religion into their strategy on uh, on on how to deal with China in the, the coming decade. And so I'm wondering uh, uh, whether the experts in the panel. Uh, will be able to offer them any advice on that and a very positive and very effective uh, policy advice on them since uh, there are many uh, occasions in, in China, in Beijing, in Shanghai, the big cities that the, uh, the Christian pastors or just the Christian fellows try to apply for visa come to come into the U.S. Uh, to meet their fellows in the churches here in either California or uh, Eastern Coast but just uh, kept rejected uh, only because they are the it, uh, they were the first time to apply for the visa to U.S., uh, so they were very very disappointed and very very upset and very dis disillusioned on U.S. Thank you. So candidates could be asked, "What is your if you're elected president? What will be your policy on human rights in China?" And the harassment of journalists. Yes, sir. This would be uh, directed towards a presidential um, uh, soft power initiative. Um, just recently, I was uh, at a presentation by Li Jinquan, uh, the Asia in in Infrastructure Investment Bank, briefly. He boasted that China has, by Chinese standards, whatever that is he didn't define, uh, has brought 600 million people out of poverty. But he didn't define what that meant. And then uh, the other day I was at the Canadian Embassy and uh, Andrew Nathan was mm -hmm. given a presentation about the Chinese middle class. Mm -hmm. And as I remember, his theme basically was there is a narrow prescribed middle class. There hadn't been a middle class before, but you know, how do the students, uh, the workers, peasants, soldiers, and students break into that class? Um, he said that's the challenge. Now I'm saying here that every day, you know, the Chinese leadership has to wake up and say, how do I feed uh, 1.2 billion people? And every day, my feeling is that they think, is there a Maoist peasant or worker who just becomes completely dissatisfied in uh, the rural China and basically starts, uh, you know, uh, flapping um, 
was a flapping uh, butterfly creating a tsunami. Um, there's a history of that in China, and they know it. So I'm saying, from a soft power point of view, how would you recommend uh, a president you know, confront China uh, effectively with non-military means, but you know, thinking of President Dwight Eisenhower, that the strength of our country is our, is our economic, our political, and our societal uh, imperatives. Um, going beyond, in other words, fighting China on the soft power basis. And that would be a kind of question to a candidate. What is your pr approach in general to soft power, and then how would it apply to China? Something like that? Is that? Yes. In other words, non-military to non-military, but how we oppose them uh -huh. and how we defeat them on that basis. You want to pick and choose among these 12 questions? I would uh, sort of group them into categories. There's military balance questions. There's the challenge of China in general. There's Taiwan submarines and how would you, would you defend Taiwan under all circumstances or just if there, it's an unprovoked attack. This is a way of raising this question some, somehow. Uh, I don't, myself speaking personally, I don't yet see a really gripping question that would outdo ISIS or Syria in terms of our media thinking, you know, I got my hand up. I've got to get this question in. So please tell me I'm wrong. Please tell me among these questions or ones you might think up, there's something gripping. By the way, Tibet and the Dalai Lama is not mentioned by any of us today. Maybe that's no longer a, a gripping topic for the media unless something happens. Uh, but there's lots of questions that compete with raising China and Asia. And it sounds like to me that we cannot put China in the front rank I have questions to ask candidates. Can that be true, Jackie? Or do you detect among all these questions something really exciting and gripping? Well, I think there are questions that you could ask that have implications for our strategy vis-a-vis -vis China that aren't directly about China. And those would be questions about uh, the defense budget, mm. um, our prioritization among foreign policy questions, the kind of broad debate questions that the candidates sometimes get. and depending on the answers, I think we would know more about how a particular candidate would approach China, too. Because don't all the candidates say they want to make America great again? It's not just Donald Trump. Well, some, they all, some they all candidates, want to somehow make America great. Some refer to nation building at home. Uh -huh. refer to, there are differences in emphasis, I would say. Do you have any favorite question you want to address of these 12, Jackie? Um, I think we only one is directed directly at you. What about war with China? You know, why do you bring that up? I think I already answered that. There was one about yes, signaling you did. and the importance of signaling. Um, and what are we signaling through the rebalance? Um, I think uh, the questioner signaled by leaving. <laughs> yes, he's not happy. That one. <laughs> not happy. No, no, no. That's the questioner still. American aggressiveness, I guess, is the theme. What about this American aggressiveness, Well, I, Jackie? the questioner mentioned April Glaspie and some yes. other cases where signals were not sent or were inadequately sent. And I think the lessons, the lessons that I draw are when confronted with credible uh, evidence that if you take a certain course, you will be checked, 
um, the cost won't be worth the gains. That's when countries stand down from challenging the status quo or trying to revise the international order. And so our rebalance was probably an attempt to respond to the last three decades of rapid Chinese growth and rapid Chinese military modernization and to say, actually, the United States still remains very interested in what goes on in the Asia Pacific. And if you try to revise the order using force or coercion, we're going to be here, we're going to defend our allies. So I think it, the, the signal that was intended was meant to be stabilizing um, and meant to deter uses of force or political pressure that would change the status quo. Mark, do you have any favorite questions you want to answer? Let me do some a, a rapid fire here. And, and, Diesel and, submarines and, for Taiwan is certainly your I, number I, that one, definitely your number would be, one well, expert in America on that topic. That, that, that definitely will be uh, one of them. Um, let me start with just overall um, the issue of signaling and, and strategy and uh, things like this. I, I'd highly recommend taking a look at a document that came out probably in 1983, 84, something like that. It was National Security Decision Directive 75, NSDD 75, to get an idea on what an integrated strategy that includes all elements of national power, uh, all, all instruments of national power, to include, um, to include political principles, like, for example, human rights, to include military, to include culture, to include a whole range of things. Just to get an idea on what, bear in mind that this former Soviet Union is not the People's Republic of China. There are similarities. They're both Leninist-based systems, and the PRC structure actually takes its, uh, at, at its heart. It has a lot of influences from, from the former Soviet Union or the Soviet Communist Party. But there are some differences. But still, just get an idea on what a national strategy would, would look like that integrates a whole range of, of elements. My, my impression, I, I, I don't sense that we have a I don't think we have a China strategy today. I don't think we had one when I was in, in government and, and working in the Office of Secretary of Defense, and I'm skeptical that there doesn't see, appear to be indications that we have one today. We tend to look at competition with the PRC today, and, and oftentimes in almost exclusive military terms. Um, I don't discount the importance of, of ensuring military readiness, um, but I would also emphasize the importance of other aspects or other instruments of national power, of which one of them is just basic principles having to do with our, our, our deals. Um, and, and so be able to recognize that there is some political competition between our, between our type of governance, some of our uh, principles having to do with the universal values, and some of the fundamental principles that guide the PRC today um, I, I think are worth gra grasping and, and coming to grips with. Um, in terms of signaling, um, you mentioned, like, for example, the example of the 60% of our Navy in the Pacific. I, I have a hard time getting excited about that when you go from 55% to 60. It's just hard. I, I, you talk, people talk about rebalance or, or pivot. I just don't see there's much there there. Um, and, of course, people will get defensive when you make that accusation and will cite off various reasons for saying, no, the rebalance is real. But um, I, I, there, um, I, I'm, I'm skeptical there's really much of a signal there. Um, if there was a signal, it could have been to our allies and, and, and possible coalition partners in the region that we're here to stay, that we're not going to be you know, we're not going to be withdrawing to Guam and, and beyond, and that there are four, four deployed forces there to stay. But um, I, I'm not sure if, if we if there's real signals that that are that that um, that are there. Um, in terms of uh, disclosing or the disclosure strategy, um, my, if there is a strategy out there with that, in terms that guiding our policy on China, it's certainly not clear to the outside, and I wouldn't um, automatically assume that whether it's a B-52 flight in the Asia Pacific or whether it's um, other actions are necessarily reflective of, of a broader strategy. Um, and of course, I can't help but. Uh, uh, in terms of the candidates having to do with human rights, um, I, there are there are two I think that have generally emphasized human rights. One, 
particularly in relation to China. One is uh, Marco Rubio, and the other one, of course, is uh, Hillary Clinton. I think both of them have um, have records on um, on principles in, in U.S. foreign policy. Um, and then on the submarine issue, um, I would advocate sooner rather than later. I would advocate that the current administration, the Obama administration, <clears throat> as soon as possible, we're talking in the next two months, uh, issue a blanket marketing license to U.S. industry to be able to tis- assist Taiwan in the development of the in, in its own development of diesel electric submarines. This was the commitment that President Bush made in April 2001, and it would be nice to see the Obama administration actually maintaining. Uh, that, that commitment today. It's been 13, 14 years, and uh, it's been, that's for 13, 14 years too long, but uh, it's not too late. And I'd recommend moving forward, uh, move forward with that with all due haste. And then approving, and, and basically based on broad technical guidelines in terms of export controls, um, then approve uh, licenses um, as well as assist Taiwan in, in program management, system engineering, um, and, and do that sooner rather than later. Okay. Dan? Uh, very pro submarines. Um, Mark and I, I think it was one of our first uh, things we worked on together in 2001. So if we get either Hillary Clinton or Jeb Bush, they can finish the work of their uh, husband and uh, brother in, in this sense. But look, the, uh, I mean, every other ally and non-ally in Asia has submarines, and, and Taiwan's an island. I mean, it's just it's so obvious that if you actually took it out of sort of the priesthood of Washington China policy and put it to the American people, you know, do you think Taiwan should have submarines? I think it would be a resounding yes. I mean, only in Washington can we have spent 14 years discussing this issue. Um, so on the eight, uh, I'll take a couple others. So I don't really believe China has soft power. I think soft power, you know, has, um, and this goes to the AAIB question and Silk Road as well. I think soft power now means anything that's non-military. You know, but you can still be very coercive through economic means and, and political means. And soft power is the attraction of your system. There may be some who are attracted to the Chinese political economic system, but I think it's few and far between. China ha- uses non-military instruments of, of influence and coercion. So AIIB is – look, my attitude on that is the United States should have just stayed silent. The United States has an answer, which is the TPP. We are not going to – we do not as a nation engage in these kinds of, infra, you know, in these kinds of directed infrastructure projects. We set up free markets. We set up rules that people join. We, China's, in terms of China's being alleviated from poverty, that's because they joined the international capitalist system. Um, you know, the, the AI, AIIB to me is – uh, and some of the work we've done at AI is a recycling of, of, of Chinese dollars. It's not a it's not a political economic system. It's a it's the, the State Development Bank of China, basically taking on a new name. You know, look, we cannot and will not compete, quote unquote, with China in terms of going into, uh, you know, uh, autocratic countries and buying off their elites. I mean, that's what they do. That's not in our interests. We can, if done right, get an emerging country like Vietnam and Malaysia and perhaps later Indonesia into our political economic structure uh, and have them change their own economic systems enormously in order to join it. And that is what the TPP is supposed to do. That is our answer. And it's, it's a trade agreement like no other. 
Um, so, you know, I think Washington gets its chain yanked a lot about, oh, my goodness, the Chinese are giving this amount of money to this, I'll be polite and a friendly, obvious, you know, this country. Uh, and we say, oh, my God, we have to go. You know, but that's, you know, look, when I, 10 years ago, you know, China, sales of commodities to China was just going to change the world, right? So people from Argentina and Peru and Australia would come by and say, oh, my goodness, you got to pay attention. And then there was a bust in the Chinese economy, and you don't hear from those countries anymore. So, you know, the U.S. has to do what it does, which is, which is, you know, base its 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 uh, its policy and its strategy based on its principles that have worked, which are market-based economies, reform, you know, allowance of entry to a lot of other countries into that, and then human rights. I mean, so finally, I'll close on on this issue. I mean, both from a U.S. principles uh, perspective, but also competitive strategies. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, the, the weakness, the biggest weakness of the Chinese government is the legitimacy of the CCP. I mean, even from a purely hard-nosed kind of realpolitik perspective, why in the world would we take human rights off the, off the, out of our toolkit? You know, even if we care not a whit about those issues in China, and we do as a nation, I mean, putting China on its, on its heels on questions of basic legitimacy, I mean, that is so fundamentally in, my in, in, in our interests, I, I can't believe there are arguments against it. In addition to the long-term strategy group's work and the Project 2049 Institute's work and the American Enterprise Institute's work, which are excellent, offering fresh ideas for the next president, I want to mention two scholars who are not here today. Uh, one is Tom Mankin who has written two interesting pieces. One is his testimony, by the way, this week that open source translations of Chinese strategy documents are very important. He testified in front of John McCain saying that. Uh, the second thing Tom Mankin has done is a chapter on what, it goes back to my own story of the Reagan campaign 1980. According to Tom Mankin's rather excellent study based on Reagan archival documents, the battle began after the election when Reagan, as president, convened his advisors and found out that many at the State Department in particular did not want a new strategy at all. And others did. And eventually, this document Mark Stokes mentioned, NSDD 75, and others came out of it. But the real battle for a new strategy that Reagan is so famous for now only started after the election. So I may be wrong focusing so much attention on candidates and the debate in the coming year. The second person had a sort of a similar idea as Aaron Friedberg. Aaron Friedberg of Princeton also has a chapter in your John Hay Initiative book, which is excellent. And he, too, calls for a policy review. He says something like the Solarium Project under Eisenhower after the president is elected. So it may be that the ideas of the three of you will only begin to be debated when the new president is in office. So I may have made a mistake focusing too much on 2016. Thank you very much. I want to applaud the panel and some very tough questions from our audience. Thanks. It's closing time.